0: For today's Bible reading, we're going through Psalms 34, uh, starting at verse 8, going 22. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the one who takes refuge in him. Fear the Lord, you His holy people. The lions may grow weak and hungry, but those who seek the Lord lack no, fat, lack no good thing. Come, my children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. Whoever of you loves life and desires to see many good days, keep your tongue from evil and your lips from telling lies. Turn from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. The eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are attentive to their cry. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil, to blot out their name from the earth. The righteous cry out, and the Lord hears them. He delivers them from all their troubles. The Lord is close to the brokenhearted and saves those who are crushed in spirit. The righteous person may have many troubles, but the Lord delivers him from them all. He protects all his bones. Not one of them will be broken. Evil will slay the wicked. The foes of the righteous will be condemned. The Lord will rescue his servants. No one who takes refuge in him will be condemned.
1: Heavenly Father we would ask tonight uh, that you would continue uh, to be to us the God who speaks and that we would be to you a people who would listen Uh, but Lord that your word to us wouldn't just uh, cease at our ears but Lord that it would penetrate into our very soul that you would be our guide Lord that you might be our corrector Lord that you would be our encourager. Heavenly Father that you would lead us by your word and your spirit. And Lord, would you equip me to the task of speaking your word faithfully? We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Now, I'm not suggesting that it happened this way, but can you please take your mind to imagine a man? I don't want you to give you to give too much thought to his fine appearance or to his handsome features but just to picture a man, and to know that an appointment has been made for this man. People have noticed his behaviour of late, and it's erratic, perhaps dangerous and reckless even. He's also been noted to be withdrawn. In fact, it seems that he's totally alone. Recently, he has, even through sad tears, said goodbye to his closest of friends. It's like he's running, but there's no sense of direction. There's just velocity behind him. He's, he's running from. There's an aimlessness to this man. He's not running to, it wouldn't seem. And as you imagine that man, perhaps a question comes to your mind to say, well, running from what? And it's hard to say. Something, someone, himself, his past, his future. It's, perhaps at the moment it's best to say he's running from an enemy and to leave it as broad as that, that he's like a fugitive. Can you picture that man? Empathise with him a bit. Imagine that he's now arriving at the appointment and he's met by a compassionate smile, a comfy seat and a box of tissues. And a question is placed out into the air. The floor's all yours. What do you want to talk about? Well, he says, you might say I've not been myself lately. And then there's a pause again and he thinks and then he says, I've been drooling. And he looks to see if it raises an eyebrow, but it doesn't. And so he continues and he says, it's not just the saliva in the beard issue. I've, um, I got apprehended just recently and I, um, and I fought against those who sought to restrain me and uh, managed to get myself to the door and cling to the doors and in fact rip at the doorposts and I left scratches there behind me and the people who were there saw a kind of madness overtake me. They thought that I was out of my mind and they said, He's insane. And so another question comes Is that what you think? Clarifying, he asks, Did did I think I was insane? And he pauses again and thinks. And he says, No. Not insane. I was terrified, I was fearful. Full of fear. And then the big question comes. Will you tell me what you fear? Oh, how long have you got? Like I said, I'm not suggesting that it happened this way. But when you come to read the story of David in the Bible, in 1 Samuel chapter 20, 21, 22, around that area, you find a man who is on the run for his life. He's running from King Saul. Of course, if you've been reading the backstory on David, you know he's got a very impressive resume. He's the one who's killed Goliath. He's the one, because of that and for other reasons, has incredible popularity. Following on from that victory, he's had several great military successes leading campaigns against the Philistines. And he's even got a song written about him in the charts. It's popular everywhere. If you want to know what the song is like, if you've got your Bibles, you turn to 1 Samuel chapter 21, you'll see... Uh, That song, it's repeated in several places, but this is the song and the way it goes. It says, Saul has slain his thousands, David his tens of thousands. The king, well, he's done that, but David, tens of thousands. And so you meet the man with the impressive resume, but you also meet someone who knows what it is to be afraid and afflicted. He might be, and in fact he is, God's anointed. It's been the case where God's prophet has pulled him aside and said, you will be God's ruler, his sovereign. You will be king one day, the the king anointed, but he's not the king reigning. That's Saul. And Saul has all the power, all the cards, and he wants David dead. And of course, there's no suggestion that David ever sat down with a counsellor But he did wrestle with that question about what you fear and what you do with it. If you haven't already, if you turn in your Bibles to 1 Samuel 21 and verse 10, you'll find it on page 232, you see something of David's fear. It helps to know that up at this point, David has had Saul's spear, a javelin, thrown at his head at least three times. Bounty hunters have been sent out repeatedly to find David, bring him back, or kill him. He's a man on the run. You find him at this point, he's got no shelter, no food, no defensive weapons, he's got no one around him, and it seemingly he has no rest. Immediately prior to the scene we're about to look at, he's been with Ahimelech the priest in Nob. There he's actually found food. He's got something in his belly and he's found something else. Astonishingly, for some reason, the sword of Goliath, the giant who was killed by David, is there with the priest at Nob. And the priest tells David to take it. And he does. Now, the last time we've seen this sword was when David took it from Goliath and hacked off Goliath's head with it and held up the head. What happened with the sword after that in between, we don't know. But right now, it's strapped to David's side as he leaves Ahimelech the priest. Now, how fearful is David of Saul? Well, have a look at where he runs. 1 Samuel chapter 21, verse 10. That day, David fled from Saul and went to Achish, the king of Gath. Gath is one of the five Philistine cities. Who has David been fighting? The Philistines. How successful has he been? Incredibly successful in those campaigns. So much so that they've written songs about it. And then you think, wait a second, he's gone to Gath. And haven't we heard of Gath before? Where was Goliath from? Gath. How many brothers does he have? Four or five. I should have read that up. But how afraid of Saul do you have to be if you run from Saul straight to the city of your enemy, a city that you are famous in for killing its greatest champion? Perhaps David thinks that it will be the last place on earth where anyone would look for him, the perfect place to hide, the perfect place to find refuge, just keep a low profile and hide from Saul in Gath. No one's looking for you there. If that's the plan, it is quickly seen to fail. Verse 11. The servants of Achish, the king of Gath, said to him, Isn't this David, king of the land? Isn't he the one that they sing about in their dances? The Saul has slain his thousands and David his tens of thousands. Immediately he's outed, he's discovered. In fact, he's actually discovered for more than he's ever been credited with before. Isn't David the king of the land? Well, he's not king yet. But that is what they see when they see David. David hears that and he's terrified. Fearing for his life, he is now a desperate man in a desperate situation. How will he survive? Well, there he is, he's on his own. But he's got the sword, he's surrounded by others, and there's King Akish in front of him. You almost expect David to go ninja in that scene. You know, whip out the sword, do the whole one man fighter slaying the scores of skilled swordsmen around him. But Goliath's sword stays sheathed by David's side. In fact, David dribbles his way out of the city. Look at verse 13. So he pretended to be insane in the presence, in their presence. And while he was in their hands, he acted like a madman, making marks on the door of the gate and letting saliva run down into his beard. Akish said to his servants, look at this man, he is insane. Why bring him to me? Am I so short of madmen that you have to bring this fellow here to carry on like this in front of me? Must this man come into my house? And right then, it's true. Akish had enough madmen already. There were enough idiots surrounding the king, so deranged are they that they let combatant number 1 of Philistine, David, walk free. Doesn't have to put up a fight. David gets delivered, saved, walks out, and all he has to do is just put on the performance of a lifetime. He does the whole kind of Jack Nicholson Oscar-winning scene and and out he dribbles set free and David is now set free to find refuge someplace else and for a time that refuge will be a cave chapter 22 verse 1 David left Gath and escaped to the cave of Adullam, where his brothers and his father's household heard about it they went down to him there all those who were in distress or in debt or discontented gathered around him and he became their commander About 400 men were with him. Now, picture the scene. David's fled for his life from Gath. He's on the run from Saul. He's come to this cave. His family has heard about that. They've come. But so are 400 others. And something else is going on in that cave as well. There's very good reason to think a psalm like Psalm 34 that we had read a moment ago was composed in a setting something like that in front of a congregation of people like that. The 400 that have come to David are described as those who are distressed and indebted and discontented. Sad, sorry lot. I mean, as if David's situation wasn't bad enough. Now he's surrounded by 400 people like that. And in that place... He starts to sing and he gets others to sing a psalm. Because David knows something about fear and about distress or what it is to be harassed and helpless and troubled, what it is to be heartbroken and crushed in spirit. When you turn and have a look at Psalm 34, you discover that it has a superscription above it that ties it to the events of David with Akish in Gath. This is a psalm of David when he pretended to be insane before Abimelech, which is the title of the king of Gath, who drove him away and he left. And then on flows the psalm. And when you read through the psalm, you say, oh, is this a psalm that kind of depicts those scenes? But there's nothing in the psalm that directly relates to those events of him being out of his mind and pretending or any of that. But it is a psalm that teaches powerfully about where those fears are. Find refuge. It's not in a cave and it's not hiding in plain sight in a pagan city and it's not into madness where refuge is found. And so we're going to spend some time in Psalm 34 thinking about that. But I've wanted to come to this psalm for more personal reasons tonight because most of you will know that this is the first time, as James has mentioned before, that I'm preaching since I returned from three months of leave leave that I took uh, to begin healing from a time of burnout. And I don't know who it was, but on the second day that I had off, I was given a, a verse. I don't remember if it came on a phone call or a text or whatever, but it was Psalm 34, 18. And I wrote it down in the little moleskin that I was carrying and I carried it with me every day that I had while I was off. And for the longest time, it was actually the only verse of Scripture that I could read. Psalm 34, 18. The Lord is close to the brokenhearted and he saves those who are crushed in spirit. When I first read it, I didn't feel like it was true. And I was pretty sure if it was true that I was the exception to that rule. But there was something about that part of God's word, that song, just that line, that phrase... That was just enough. Like I'd heard God say, you do know that I've seen this before. That I've heard laments like yours before. Your soul feels downcast, I get that. I want you to know that I wasn't kidding when I said, blessed are the poor in spirit. You've walked into a dark night and I'm close by. I hear... I see, I deliver, I save. My mind had arrived at a place where I was pretty good at knowing God to be like that kind of God and simultaneously being able to find my way to deeply fear and to be full of uncertainty and deep lament. what was curious to me that early on it wasn't this psalm or any passage in scripture or any song that you find in the bible that helped it was another song that i listened to quite a bit it was a song written by alanis morissette on her jagged little pill album and for many of you you go um which is sad because i'm listening to lots of my kids music and no one's listening to anyway but the song thanks brother But the song that Alanis wrote some 30 years ago, probably 20-something years ago, Hand in My Pocket, resonated really deeply for me. In it, she has these little couplets. I'm tired, but I'm working. I care, but I'm restless. I'm here, but I'm really gone. I'm wrong, and I'm sorry. And she goes on and explores those kind of two duelling and opposed, but yet kind of connected ideas. And it reminded me as I was listening to it of when Paul in 2 Corinthians 4 talks about what Christian ministry and life feels like. And he says, we're hard pressed, but not crushed, perplexed, but not in despair. We're persecuted, but we are not abandoned. And we're struck down, but not destroyed. I'm here, but I'm really gone. I'm wrong and I'm sorry. I am care, but I'm restless. And, and the chorus that Alanis comes back with And what it all comes down to is that everything's going to be fine, fine, fine. what it all comes down to is that everything's going to be quite all right. And that was incredibly encouraging. Encouraging that God would use Alanis Morissette. (laughs) Because I had fear and I had tons of uncertainty. And for the most part, I had this sense of hope. That others had travelled this road and survived like David and like the 400 in the cave and not just survived, they'd even thrived. People like Spurgeon who when he's speaking from his own experience about the times of depression that he experienced, he, he writes this, he says, "'The strong are not always vigorous,' The wise not always ready, the brave not always courageous, and the joyous not always happy. Oh, there may be some here and there, men of iron, to whom the wear and tear of work show no perceptible detriment, but surely the rust frets even these. As for the ordinary ones, the Lord knows and makes them know that they are but dust and David teaches us and that gathered congregation in the cave or wherever he wrote that psalm the same thing and which is astonishing because you think about David and you say hang on David what are you scared of how are you afflicted or crushed in spirit as a boy you fought the lion and the bear <laughs> you killed a giant david And you've led the successful military campaigns. You've won the heart of the people. What are you afraid of? David is running scared. He talks about it in this psalm, in Psalm 34, verse 4, and he says that uh, from all of my fears, God has delivered me. Afflicted as he was, he knows fear. And so when you ask David, David, will you tell me what you fear? Or if you ask yourself the question, or me, will you tell me what you fear? You you kind of expect David to say, I fear Saul. I fear the one who has got all the power and all the cards and all the javelins, and I fear the point of those javelins. And I fear the Philistine thugs. That's what I fear. But he doesn't say that. He points you to Psalm 34 and he says, I'll tell you what I fear. I fear the Lord. And he's got a little play on words when he does that. He's not talking about being terrified of God. In fact, in in verse 4, when he talks about being delivered from all my fears, he's saying, I've been uh, saved and delivered from all of my terrors. But when he talks about fearing the Lord, he's talking about surrendering, about a reverence that's given to God. David is saying that that there's an acknowledgement of God and his capacity, the sheer magnitude of God, his majesty, to which he bends the knee in awe and reverence, in that kind of fear. Where David says something like, well, God is somewhat more impressive than me. And he has at his disposal more resources than I have. And so the fear of the Lord is the antidote to self-sufficiency and human pride. The human pride that says... Okay, this fear, I've got this, I can beat this, I'll fix this, I'll wait this out, I'll run this course. I'll... And ultimately, that's foolishness, we discover. But the fear of the Lord, as Proverbs repeatedly tells us, and this, this psalm affirms, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. A wisdom that recognises reality of who God is and lives in harmony with that reality. And so this idea of fearing the Lord is all about reverencing God and trusting Him and worshipping Him and obeying Him. In fact, you can structure the psalm that way. Reverence, trust, worship, obey. The right response to fear. And what you discover is that David does for us what Spurgeon does in his lectures to his students. He teaches us from his own experience. We had it read for us a moment ago in verse 8 where David turns to his gathered congregation that are singing together and he says, "'Taste and see that the Lord is good. "'Blessed is the one who takes refuge in him.'" Or oh, you've come to the cave or you've gone to Gath to find refuge or you're on the run or whatever. It is. But true, lasting refuge is found in him. And David's command is that people might taste and see that God is good irrespective of their circumstances. Him being on the flight for his life, the distressed, the indebted, the discontented that, that have gathered, Irrespective, taste and see that the Lord is good. And when he says taste, he's really saying trust. You you, you know this, don't you? That tasting is always an act of trust. Especially if, you know, the person who's cooking doesn't like you or you don't know them. When you you sit down to the meal and, and, and taste, you're taking your very life into your hands sometimes. I remember doing that one night. I ate raw chicken just to impress a girl because her mum had cooked it. Never doing that again. <laughs> and that idea of taste, as one commentator says, it's not a ca- casual sampling. It's not like going to the gelato bar and saying, can I just have just a corner of the lemon sorbet? And then you're like, oh, that's... Mm, I don't like that. No, no, this is feast. This is actually come to the God who has acted consistently and actually gorge, taste and see... Trust and then watch. And what do you notice about God? Well, He brings about blessing to those who take refuge in Him. Verse 9 goes on to show you that at the heart of that is that idea of reverencing or fearing the Lord. Fear the Lord, you His holy people. For those who fear Him lack nothing. Oh, but we're indebted and we're distressed. And we're discontented. We lack a lot. Lack nothing. If you take God and the, the full perspective of what he is offering you as you fear him and trust him, you will lack nothing. I oh, know surely I can get it for myself. You think like that? Well, you're just thinking like a lion, aren't you? I mean, you, and when you think about the lion, the lion, the, the lion when, you, when you think about the, the documentaries that you've watched, I mean, the lion's the top of the food chain, right? Eat whatever they want. I mean, there they are. They're they're out for the meal, and off goes the antelope, the gazelle, or whatever it is, and off they go. Big raw teeth, and you know how this ends. They're just going to tear into it. There's going to be blood and fur and a full belly, right? But, but, But you've also seen the documentaries, haven't you, where where the lion takes off. And just at the point where it's about to do its final leap, the gazelle just pings the opposite direction and then poof, just a power of dirt and spray and, and all of a sudden just, the lion sprawling. I had an empty stomach. I'm the king of the beasts. Doesn't the gazelle know it's just meant to lie down and say, okay, just kind of like eat me. I got nothing left. I'm tanked out. And sometimes David says, Verse 10 Lions may grow weary and hungry. Doesn't all work out of that. If you think it's your own strength, no, no, no. But those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. That there's a God who knows what his children need and he provides. There's a sustenance that comes, there's a refuge. That is safe. And so then David invites us to come like children and listen. And he says, I will teach you the fear of the Lord. Come like children, children who are learners, who recognise that they don't know everything. That's true for some kids. And who are willing to learn and anticipating with some level of delight that perhaps they don't have all the answers takes a level of humility. Come like that, he says, and listen. And I'll teach you the fear of the Lord. And then he goes on and he says, whoever of you loves life and desires to see many good days. And you think, well, that's hand up, right? Discontented, indebted, but but hand up. I want to see many good days. How does that come about? Verse 12, keep your tongue from evil and your lips from telling lies. Turn from evil and do good, seek peace and pursue it. And you kind of go, Hang on. Is is that the way it works? If you want to see many good days and love life, what are you to do? Well, keep your tongue from evil, lips from telling lies. Turn from evil and do good. Seek peace, pursue it. It it sounds like you can almost put together the equation about how you can work this out. The good you do brings about the good you desire. Is that the way it works? Do good and get the good you desire. And yet that doesn't seem to ring true in David's case or the 400 or even in this psalm or the rest of the Bible, for that matter. In fact, troubles you can be sure of. And doesn't the rain fall on the righteous and the unrighteous? And and what you discover David is saying, as he seeks to teach them what it is to fear the Lord, is saying, there is your identity that defines who you are. Not in the obedience of what you do, the tongue from evil and the lips from telling lies and the seeking of the peace. It's not that you get in with God and the good that you desire from doing those things. But that because you have God as, you re, as your refuge, you then respond with a life of obedience to him. It's the equation that says trust and obedience that flows as an overflow. For the eye of the Lord is on the righteous, verse 15. And his ear is attentive to their cries. See, they'll still cry out. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil to blot out their name from the earth. Who are those who do evil? They are those who do not fear the Lord. And then he tells you again, Don't think the equation that says do good, get good, the karma equation works. For the righteous will cry out, verse 17, and the Lord, the one in whom you've taken refuge, he hears you and he delivers from all your troubles. In fact, he's close to the brokenhearted and he saves those who are crushed in spirit. It could be as bad and as dark as that. And David says, do you know that? He's already sung about the idea of deliverance and trusting in a God who hears. There's a new element in verse 18 where he says, do you know that God literally is the near neighbor to the brokenhearted? And I don't know about you, but I needed to hear that. Today, as much as I did over each of the days for the last three months and long before that, And there's been a season where I've forgotten it. That the Lord is the near neighbour to the brokenhearted. He's just, just over the fence. He's just, he's ready to pop in. He's, he's right there. And he saves those who are crushed in spirit. And we might look for refuge in all kinds of places. And he says, it's in the fear of the Lord. It's not in the fear of, other people of threats the future the past is to fear god and to know that he is close by to you and to me in all of our fears verse 19 the righteous person may have many troubles but the lord delivers him from them all it is a wonderful truth because there are many responses to fear And the surprise is that David's response, even even his response when he is with Achish, the king of Gath, when he feigns insanity, when you go and read Psalm 56, which he writes during that period of time, he talks about him trusting in God and following in God's ways, that God's provision that he would be removed and delivered from that place was this feigned insanity. Even there, he demonstrates a trust in God. And not only... Does he trust as his response to fear? He praises. When I was given that verse 18 three months ago, I thought, oh, I'll go back and read the rest of the psalm. And I didn't like the rest of the psalm at all, particularly because of the way it begins. It begins with a call for all of God's people to praise the Lord. I will extol the Lord at all times. I will... His praise will always be on my lips. I will glory in the Lord. Let the afflicted hear and rejoice. That's a hard thing to do. Let the afflicted hear and rejoice. Glorify the Lord with me. Let us exalt his name together. And I, well, I had nothing in the tank. And then David tells us what he did. Verse four, I sought the Lord and he answered me. Well, bully for you, David. He delivered me from all of my fears. Those who look to him are radiant. Their faces are never covered with shame. The dribbling, saliva-filled beard, a face now radiant... This poor man called and the Lord heard him. He saved him out of his troubles. The angel of the Lord, God himself, encamps around those who fear him. He delivers them. It's better than him being just close by the near neighbor. He surrounds, he he dwells, he tabernacles, he tents. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him. And so that response of trusting in God and bringing praise has actually become something that's incredibly important to me. Because David is right. And many have walked this path before. And those feelings of a crushed spirit or the brokenheartedness or the terrors that come isn't God's absence from us. God is asking, will you tell me what you fear? In verse 19, the righteous person may have many troubles, but the Lord delivers him from them all. He protects all his bones. Not one of them will be broken. And you think that's a curious thing for David to say, isn't it? Well, maybe it's because when David's in the cave, the mountainous area in the terrain, it's all, you know, there's no trees holding stuff together. It's easy to slip and fall. In fact, broken legs or wrists and that, probably commonplace. And here's David saying, I've I've been fleet-footed like a deer. He's allowed me to go onto the heights, protected all of my bones in that place. And, And then as you read it, you think, well, wait a minute. That sounds so familiar, doesn't it? It reminds you of the command that God gives to Israel when it's in Egypt, you may or may not know this story, but that time where Israel is about to see God's judgment pass over Egypt and their oppressors and they've been told to take a lamb. It's to be spotless, they're to care for it, they're to slaughter it one night. And everyone who comes into that house and with the blood of that lamb uh, painted across the doorposts, all who preside inside will, will, will be safe. The, the angel of the Lord will pass over them and they'll be... Well, they'll have found refuge and their lives will be spared. And of that lamb that's to be slaughtered, the instructions are very clear. Not a bone is to be broken. And, of course, as you read that, it immediately reminds you of one who is to come, who's the perfect lamb of God, the the one who is righteous, and he knew many troubles, the, the very son of God. And when he dies on the cross, a sin-bearing death that provides refuge for all who will take shelter in that. Where he will pay the debt and all of the distress. And every discontent is gone because he has supplied everything. When he dies that death and provides that refuge, there are two others that die that day. Two criminals on two other crosses. And in order to speed up their execution, their legs are broken so that they'll asphyxiate more quickly. But when they come to break Jesus' legs, they realise that he's already been extinguished. And John tells us in chapter 19 verse 36 that it was to fulfil this prophecy that not a bone was broken. Because here is the one who brings ultimate deliverance, who's heard the cry of humanity and has brought salvation to all. Evil will slay the wicked, verse 21. The foes of the righteous will be condemned, justice will come, but the Lord will rescue his servants. How does he do that in an ultimate sense? Through Christ and Christ alone. The Lord will rescue. And no one who takes refuge in him will be condemned. And that's the safest place there is. To whatever your fears are, that is the ultimate remedy. No one who takes refuge in him will be condemned. It's what Paul sings about in Romans 8. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That is where we find refuge. At the end of that chapter, Paul goes on to explore that in more detail because he's still wrestling. Well, could it really be that good? Could it really be that safe? If God, he says, is for us, Who can be against us? Well, I'll tell you who could be against me. And then you stop and you realise, well, only really God could be against me. If he's for me, then who could be? Well, he who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? You'll lack nothing. Verse 33, well, who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? Well, I'll tell you who's, you know. And, uh, well, it's God who justifies. Well, then who is it that condemns? No one. Well, actually, Christ Jesus could, couldn't he? I mean, he's the perfect one, the righteous one, and I'm not. He could. Jesus Christ. And Paul says the one who died, more than that, who was raised to life and is at the right hand of God is also interceding for us. He's the one in God's presence who's actually saying, that person, you, me, they have found refuge in my death and I'm interceding on their behalf. They are delivered. Well, then who shall separate us from the love of God, the love of Christ, shall trouble or hardship, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword. As it's written, for your sake, we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. No, none of those things. None of the indebtedness, the distressness, or none of the discontentedness, or none of the fleeing that we might feel within ourselves. No, in all of these things, in this life, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. And then Paul goes on to speak of his conviction, something that it's been so wonderful to be reminded of. And to be convinced of myself, I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any power, not height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us From the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing. Will you tell me what you're afraid of? Well, there is always a God to be feared to be revered and trusted and worshipped and obeyed because even those who are fearful and afflicted and crushed in spirit are still seen and heard and close to and delivered by the only one who supplies true refuge. The Lord rescues his servants. The one who takes refuge in him will not be condemned. Psalm 34, 1 to 3, is right. With that kind of news and that kind of understanding, ought we not praise the Lord? Pray with me. Heavenly Father, humble us that we might extol your name at all times that your praise would always be on our lips, that we would glory in the Lord. Let we, the afflicted, hear and rejoice, glorifying the Lord together. Let us exalt your name together. In Jesus' name, our refuge. Amen. And that is what we're going to do. Musicians, lead us that we might praise.